0: Good morning. I don't know if you're comforted or not that your uh, associate pastor referred to that as a lotto scratchy ticket, um, but I, I think that's good. That's a good example of what's going on there. We're excited about uh, these kind of things. It's, it's a different, see, different time in our church lives, the, the things that we're going through now, but um, we're, we're trying to creatively help you commit to worship, learning, mission, and relationships, and we hope that... Um, you can take advantage of some of that. We're, we're in Mark 8, 9, and 10 again today. Um, it's, it's our season focusing on the Gospels, and if you've been around, you realize we've been talking about Mark's version of what I call the misunderstood Messiah, that Jesus was not what the people were expecting. And in, in the first eight chapters, there's story after story, rapid fire, where they saw before their eyes uh, the acts of Jesus that confronted them with whether or not he was the Messiah, and then last week we kind of focused in on chapters 8, 9, and 10, which is it's a narrowed focus just to the disciples, and three times we saw last week Jesus helps them understand what it actually means for him to be the Messiah. This week we're going to come back to those three chapters, 8, 9, and 10, but I want to look at a text, the main part of what we're going to do today is a text right in the middle that we, that we skipped last week purposely. Um, Uh, The story is a bit unusual, but it's a part of the disciples grasping who Jesus is. It's it's the transfiguration. They go up to the mountain and Jesus is transfigured and Matthew, Mark and Luke all tell it. But Mark does something in this section that narrows to the disciples of chapters 8, 9 and 10 that I think is important to help us understand the story of the transformation or the transfiguration. And to get that, we have to get a little technical in the way we approach the text, and and, uh, it's it's nothing that technical, so don't worry, but I want to start by looking at the organization of the text. He's put these three chapters, 8, 9, and 10, together in a certain way, and we often forget that the writers, when they do this, they're not just relaying the chronological events of Jesus' life. Sometimes it's chronological, but sometimes they put the stories together in thematic ways to emphasize the points that they're trying to get across. And these chapters are a really good example. You'll remember this, this section on the disciples starts with what last I called last week the biggest question of all. It's the question for the disciples. Not what do people say? What do people say about who I am? But but really personal in Mark 8:29, what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? And last week we talked about how in these chapters, 8, 9, and 10, Jesus is, is trying to open their eyes to the fact that He is the Messiah and what that actually means. But there's something I left out last week. There's two miracle stories, one at the beginning of this section and one at the end of this section, that I think are really important. And I'm going to let Griffin and Carrie Larson read those texts to us, chapter 8, 22 to 26, and chapter 10, 46 to 52. Mark,
1: Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. When they arrived at the Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus, and they begged him to touch the man and heal him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Then, spitting on the man's eyes <laughs> and laying his hands on him, can, he said, Can Can you see anything? The man looked around. Yes, he said, I see people, but I cannot see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. Then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and the man's eyes were opened. His sight was completely restored, and he could see Jesus sent him away, saying, Do not go back to the village on your way home. Mark chapter 10, starting at 46. Then they reached Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples left town, a large crowd followed him. Always a large crowd. A blind beggar named Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting beside the road. When Bart heard that Jesus of Nazareth was nearby, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me! Be quiet, many of the people yelled at him, but he only shouted louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. And when Jesus heard him, he stopped and said, Tell him to come here. And so they called the blind man. Cheer up, they said. Come on, he's calling you. Bart threw aside his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. Rabbi, my rabbi, the blind man said. I want to see. And Jesus said to him, Go, for your faith has healed you. And instantly the man could see, and he followed Jesus down the road.
0: So what's fascinating about this this chunk of text, Mark 8, 9, and 10, which is focused on the disciples coming to grips with who the Messiah is, is that there are bookends of healing blindness. Two short stories, like I say, not necessarily chronological. The first one in Mark 8 that Griffin read, this this unnamed man in the town of Bethsaida, and they brought him to Jesus. Some people brought him to Jesus. And Jesus took him by the hand and led him outside the village. And then in a very COVID unfriendly action, Jesus spits on his eyes and then puts his hands on him. And then he says, do you see anything? And the man says... I see people, but they look like trees walking around. Now, I don't know about you, but that's weird to me. Like, was Jesus distracted and he just didn't have the juice in him? Was it Why didn't he just heal the guy? Does that make sense? It, it doesn't make sense to me. It's not like Jesus just thought, oh, sorry, I didn't quite go all the way. Right? There's something going on here. And and I've always wondered why. And and maybe. Jesus is doing this in a certain way, or at least it happened this way, and Mark puts it here to convey the idea that sometimes it takes multiple touches to be clear, for us to be able to see. In verse 25, once more Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Then there's this second story in chapter 10, verse 46 to 52, and this time we know the guy's name, it's Bartimaeus, and the story plays out very differently. Nobody's bringing him to Jesus. In fact, they try to shut him up. But what does he call out? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. A clearly messianic reference, son of David. And, and what's interesting here is the blind man could see very clearly what the disciples were struggling to grasp, that, that, what Messiah was here. And he keeps calling until Jesus tells him to come. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And once again, that's one of those things where I'm like, what is going on there? Like, he's blind. What do you think he wants you to do do for him? And, And he says, I want to see. And Jesus heals him. Now, in this case, immediately, he receives his sight and he follows. There's no touching. There's no spitting. Anything like that. Two unique stories. And, and remember Mark, Mark is this rapid fire storyteller. He doesn't give a lot of details, but why does he give these details, right? I think Mark puts them here to help us understand that in, the, in between these two stories, the disciples' eyes are being opened gradually. They're being healed ever so slowly of their own spiritual blindness. He's helping them see what it means to be the Messiah. And then in between comes the story that's our main focus today, chapter 9, 2 to 13, on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Mount of Transfiguration, I'm going to ask Tim. I'm getting a phone call. Haha, ha. I'm going to ask Tim to read that one for us. Chapter 9, 2 to 13.
2: Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. Even better than Clorox. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, whoa, this is good. Let's camp out. We'll make three shelters. Uh, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He said this because he didn't really know what else to say. and They were all pretty scared. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone, and only Jesus was with them. As they went back down the mountain, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept it to themselves. But they often asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. And then they asked him, Why do the teachers of religious law insist that Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? Jesus responded, Elijah is indeed coming first to get everything ready for the Messiah. Yet why do the scriptures say that the Son of Man must suffer greatly and be treated with utter contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they chose to abuse him, just as the scriptures predicted.
0: So we're on the Mount of Transfiguration, and to me, this is one of the strangest stories of the entire New Testament. Jesus takes three of his disciples up on a mountain. Most likely it's Mount Hermon at the northern part of Israel, near the headwaters of the of the Jordan, and he was transfigured before them. Now, how many times in the past month have you used that word, transfigured, in a sentence? We never use that word, right? That's that's not a common word. So what does transfigured mean? I'm just going to make an announcement here. Carter Perry, if you're watching us on TV, stop FaceTiming me because you're interrupting my notes over and over and over. So he's got these guys, they're on the mountain, he's transfigured. The Greek word for transfigured is metamorpho, which we get metamorphosis from, to be changed completely, to be transformed, like caterpillar to butterfly. And his clothes become dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them, and there appeared before... Here, Jake, take this phone away. This is really, I've never had this happen before. Thank you, Carter Perry, for adding to my life in so many wonderful ways. Anyway, back to the text. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there before him, are, with him, are Elijah and Moses uh, talking to him. Now, these guys, Elijah and Moses, have been dead for hundreds of years. My question, too, as I read the text is, how do the disciples know it's Elijah and Moses? They've never seen Elijah and Moses, Right. And Peter, at this moment, wants to build these booths, these little mini tabernacles. It says, they were so frightened, he doesn't know what to say, but he still comes up with a thing to say. And then the cloud comes and envelops them. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, that's what happened when the glory and the presence of God showed up. The cloud came into the temple or the tabernacle and enveloped them. And a voice comes from the cloud, this is my son, whom I love, listen to him. And suddenly, all they see is Jesus. And they head back down the mountain with Jesus saying, hey, don't tell anybody about this <laughs> until after I'm raised from the dead. I mean, it's, it's just a weird story. And it's, it's powerful. It's, it's hard to believe. It's, it's hard to understand. And I want to make sure we're not misunderstanding the mountaintop. Okay? We, it, it's an important story to grasp. And there's a lot of truths, I think, in this passage um, that we call the transfiguration. And, and I want us to grasp them and apply them. But I also want to hone in today on what I think is what's underneath all of these different application points in the moment, right? There's usually a couple of application points that are made here. Um, If if you Google sermons or if you watch sermons or if you listen to my old sermons on the Transfiguration, uh, we pastors kind of come in circles and there's two things that we tend to focus on repeatedly. Uh, The first is that this story we say is about spiritual peaks and life in the valley, Many people see the story from the life of Jesus, and they say something like this to apply it. There are times in our relationship with God when we have these—we truly experience Him in this deep and powerful way. It's, it's a moment. It's one of those, those times, they call them thin spaces, when it feels like the curtain between heaven and earth is, is very, very thin, and we, we have this glorious experience of God. And it's important and life-changing, but you can't expect to live on the mountaintop forever. Life happens down in the valley... And the disciples have that moment, but they have to come down and live in the real world. And and it's good, and it's true that that there are moments sometimes in our life when we feel the presence of God, but we can't expect all of our Christian life to be like that. We have to live in in the reality that we live in. But, But at the same time, you know, if that's the only interpretation of the text... It says the disciples were terrified. This is not a moment when you're singing a worship song and you feel that warm fuzzy. This is, they were face down on the ground, absolutely terrified. And, and if Jesus wanted to give the disciples a spiritual moment, why didn't he take all 12 of them? Why just the three? It's true, we can't expect the spiritual life to always be these powerful experiences, but there's more for us. And now, second application that pastors make, and I'm guilty of this too, it's, it's all about Peter's misguided words and actions. Peter tries to freeze the moment. Hey, Jesus, let's stay here. <laughs> and I love this. He's terrified. He's so terrified he doesn't know what to say, but he has something to say anyway. Let's, let's build these tents. Let's stay in this moment. And in those sermons, the point comes: let's not try to micromanage God. Just listen. Follow. Don't try to make, this, don't try to make everything work out. And, and that's a great application point, too. I'm going to get to a little bit of that at the end, right? But I want you to realize that there's something deeper than both of those points going on here. That this is not about a single moment in time. It's something bigger than just this moment. Now, I mean, like Moses and Elijah are there, right? Uh, and, And that's the law and the prophets. And at the end of it, all is left is they see Jesus. He's kind of superseded or at least... Uh, gotten their endorsement of the Law and the Prophets, that's that's a big story in the past. And then in the future, you know, he's talking about this Elijah that is to come, and and we think he's referencing John the Baptist. There's a glimpse of something that's been going all along. There's a glimpse of something that's going to continue to happen. But it's more than about this moment. And and I think the underlying message, if you want to get to what I think is the heart of the application for that moment is Jesus was helping them in seeing the reality behind their experience. What do I mean by that? They saw Jesus in all his glory. And if there's only one thing you remember from today, other than the fact that Carter Perry keeps interrupting me with his FaceTime calls, is that even if you miss everything else, just get this sentence. I'm going to say it three times, so you're going to get it. It's not on the screen or anything, but you're going to hear it. We have to realize that it was a moment of seeing and not a moment of glory. The moment was them being actually able to see the glory. Not that Jesus was glorified for a moment, but that they could see the glory that he actually had. Their eyes were open to Jesus as he is. See, the truth and the glory and the majesty of Jesus wasn't that moment. Oh, look, look what he is now. Look what he's been received. It was the reality that that was always there and they could see it for the moment. We have to realize it's a moment of seeing and not a moment of glory. Now, um, one of my cool things I like on the Internet is what they call perceptual art. It's when there's an art installation that when you look at it from a certain perspective, you get a picture, but you have to be at that certain spot. There's there's an artist, very talented, Michael Murphy. We're going to show you just about a minute and a half of his work to, to help you understand that. These images that he's putting up there are always there, but you have to move to the right place to be able to see them, right? And what happens on that mountain is the experience of a reality that is the reality, even though they couldn't see it. The fact of Jesus being God and all that that entails and the glory and the power and the majesty was true every single second of every day that they walked with him but their perspective needed to be the reality behind their day-to-day experience. And part of that was what they saw, and part of that was what they listened to. See, that's why on the mountain, seeing Jesus as He truly is, and being enveloped with this cloud of the presence of the glory of God, their ears heard the call to listen. Verse 7, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. See, Peter gave it his best shot at honoring God, God in the flesh. But God says to Peter, Peter, all you really need to do in response is to listen. You know, sometimes in the church or in our Christian life, we work so hard to get things done for God. We want to do good things. And there's nothing wrong with doing good things. But very often we're running ahead of the listening and trying to to do. We're trying to build the tents and the tabernacles and capture the moment and make sure it works instead of actually listening. Have you ever gotten gifts from people? Like sometimes you can get an expensive gift from someone, but it's obvious in the gift that they don't know you at all or they've not listened to, to who you are or what you want. Or then you might get a, an inexpensive gift, but it's so thoughtful. You just realize that person knows me. They've heard me, right? And the call for us is to listen first to Jesus and what he's called us to. Following the Messiah means aligning all our life with Jesus as the center of reality. I love verse 8. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. He was all that was left. Moses and Elijah were gone. (coughs) The white blinding light and the cloud was gone. But the message of that moment was that the Jesus that they had seen, that they had walked up the mountain with, that's really all that they needed. And they don't get it. It's clear from their conversation as they head down the mountain. But the point of the transfiguration is that the guy walking beside them was God in the flesh, even if they couldn't always see it fully. And that listening to him was what they really needed to do. And so as we live in the valley here, the Fraser Valley, day to day in this pandemically crazed, politically unstable world, this moment on the mountain calls us to living with our eyes open. That's what we want to be doing. What was true for them is true for us. The call as followers of the Messiah is to be open to having our eyes open. To see Jesus for who he is all the time. It's what Paul was calling us to in 2 Corinthians 4. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We fix our eyes on what is unseen. To live with our eyes open is to understand and live out of this fact, that the transfiguration is reality, not just a moment. It's reality. We have to realize it was a moment of seeing and not a moment of glory The glory is true each and every second, whether we see it or not. You know, if you read the Psalms, it talks about the glory of God, the, the heavens are declaring the glory of God, and the, the day after day they pour forth speech. You, you see that all throughout Scripture that the earth is filled with the glory of God. And then Habakkuk the prophet, in Habakkuk 2:14 I, I don't have this one on the screen because it just hit me yesterday. He says, "One day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord." as the waters cover the sea. What he's saying is the glory's there, but one day we're all going to see it fully. Remember John, exiled on the island of Patmos, right? He's, he's suffering persecution and imprisonment and difficulty. And in Revelation 1, he says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like a son of man. Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and he said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. You see, he saw Jesus as Jesus actually is in that moment, despite the reality that he was experiencing in exile. It's not for a moment on the mountain that Jesus becomes glorious. It's for a moment he lets the disciples see who He really is. That can be a challenge for us. That's what it means to live by faith. That we don't give in to what we see, but we ask God to show us what is beyond, and even when we don't see it, we trust. See, an aspect of this, another lesson, is don't be limited by your present experience. It's a challenge because our experience... Is just that, it's, it's our experience. How can we perceive the world to be any different than the way that we experience it? That's a philosophical question, right? This is what I experience in the world. How can I perceive it to be different? We live in our experience every day. It's the water we swim in. But we have to sometimes approach it humbly and realize that there is more going on beyond our experience. That when we feel alone, that when we feel lost, that when we feel if there's nothing good that could possibly come out of this, that our experience of the moment does not have the final word on reality. Just like that morning of the resurrection, right on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, these two disciples are walking along and they're talking and and Jesus asks them, he says, what things have happened? they say, well, about Jesus of Nazareth, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. You see, their experience was that Jesus was dead, that they were alone, that the hope they had for Israel was lost. That was their experience, very heavy, very real, very tangible for them. And yet at that moment, they were walking with the resurrected Jesus. He had never been closer. He had never been more in charge of reality than at that very moment. All of that was true, that he was the one that was alive, even though their experience told them the exact opposite. And I mean, I know Eric's, I'm in our experience too. I know, I, because I love you guys and you trust me as your pastor, and Jake, Jake and I know the experiences that you walk through. We, we, we see them. We walk along with you sometimes. But, but the point is, we have to trust that there is something beyond that happening. We have to be humble in that. And one thing that comes with that humility is don't seek to manage the glory. And this is where I'm going back to the old application, but that's okay. We, we don't do well with glory, <laughs> It's, it's so out of our control. In fact, the Hebrew word for the glory of God is kavod, and it means weight or heaviness, right? It's something that, that, that weighs us down. And we usually feel intimidated or, or like we should do something or respond when we feel the glory of God in a deep and powerful way. It's like, maybe I understand this more than, than others, but it's like the teenage boy when his, the girl he has a crush in walks in the room and all of a sudden he can't think of anything to say. He stumbles over his words or... Or, or even worse, he says so much and it sounds stupid what comes out of his mouth. He, he can't handle that moment. When we encounter the glory of God, we become like these foolish people. We feel like we need to do something with it. Peter, last week, you know, Jesus says, hey, look, this is what Messiah is. They're gonna, they're gonna, I'm going to be arrested and, and persecuted. I'm going to die. And it says in Mark eight thirty two, he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He couldn't handle the glory. He's got to do something with it. And again on the mountain, hey, let's build three tents. He didn't know what to say, so he said something anyway, right? The heaviness of God is hard to deal with, and it's not something that we manage or control. We have to let it be. We have to be with it, even if it's overwhelming. In Matthew's version of the transfiguration story, In Matthew 17, he says, When the disciples heard this, this voice, This is my son, whom I love, listen to him. They fell face down on the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. This moment, this heaviness, the glory of God knocked them flat. But Jesus comes and he touches them. He says, don't be afraid. Guys, this isn't something you manage. This isn't something you control. It's something that is even if you don't get it. Well, so what do we do? (laughs) What do we do when we get glimpses of this reality beyond our experience? We listen and we tell the story. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And even as they go down the mountain, Jesus fully expected them to tell the story. But he tells them, wait until after the resurrection. And I, I think that's Most likely because the presence of the Spirit needs to be in people when they hear these stories, because you can't explain it, you can't understand it, you can't grasp it. But they did. They listened. They told the story we see in the early church in Acts 4. Peter and John called on the carpet before the religious leaders, and they tell them not to talk anymore, and Peter and John say, Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help but speaking about what we've seen and heard. They tell the story. They listen. They tell the story. So what does the transfiguration say to us? It says, even though we are often blind to the glorious power of God and its presence with us each and every day, God can open our eyes at times to see beyond. And that by humble faith and trust, we learn to rest in, in, in what lies beyond our experience. And we don't have to manage it. We don't have to explain it. We don't have to mediate it. We don't have to make excuses or try to control it. You know, it's funny. When I, I see people and they have spiritual conversations and one person's had this powerful experience with God and you can see the other person trying to, well, maybe this or maybe that. Just let it be what it is. You don't have to explain it away. You don't have to just, just, it is. We have to listen in our own experiences, and we have to tell the story of how God has transformed us, how we've experienced His presence. And you know what? The reality is, most of the time, we don't even get it. If you've had those moments, whatever they may be, simple or profound, it's very hard to put it into words sometimes. And what's interesting to me is, Peter, James, and John all wrote books in the Bible. They never told the story. Like, it got passed down, but they never wrote it down. Because sometimes it's just hard to actually put pen to paper and explain what happened on the mountain there. You may not be able to either. Sometimes when you're trying to tell the story, you may have to say things like, you know, I had this and I really can't explain it. I can't explain it. I know it doesn't make sense. Yesterday, we, um, we did family memorial for, for Barry Mansfield. And I'm sitting in the room there with the family over on one side and, and Jake and I over on this side far away and and it was just one of those moments because you <laughs> I'm going to get choked up talking about it but it, there's sadness in the room there's bro, we're, we're, we're all sad because Barry is not with us we've lost what a gift Barry was right but but I look at his family and I look at at, at the reality of the legacy of the life that he's lived and the hope that they have in this. And, and you just realize there's, there's something profound happening here. There's this mix of sorrow and sadness and incredible joy. And, and how do you explain that? How do you, put, you don't put that into words. There, there's a glimpse of the glory of God behind a traumatic, difficult experience. And sometimes you say, you know what, I wish I could help you see what I see, but I'm just going to tell you my story. And all of that is okay, if you can't explain it, just listen, say what you can, and leave it. Because behind whatever words you share is a glory of a God who desires to be known. And and the prophet Habakkuk says, you know, one day, one day there'll be a day when the earth will be filled, not only with the glory of God, but with the knowledge of the glory of God, the way the waters cover the sea. And that's something you can count on, that's something you can take to the bank even when your own experience is hard to describe or explain. Let's pray. God, we, we want to see your glory in as much as we can handle. We want to be able to not be so paralyzed by our experience. And even as we feel overwhelmed by experiences, we want to be able to humbly trust that behind it, somehow you are the God of power and glory and might who is driving the universe to your conclusions. Give us a gift of faith to see. Help us to fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. And to rest in the truth that is true, even if we don't sense it or see it or understand it. We pray that, that, that in those moments that we do have, where we feel like we've gotten a glimpse, where we've tasted your love, your grace, your power, your mercy, whatever it may be, That we can quiet our hearts and listen to that moment, to what you would say. And that as time goes on, we can tell that story. Even if people don't get it. Even if we feel like our words are really futile. Help us to to listen and tell the story of your reality, the glorious God, who one day will fill the earth with the knowledge of that glory. Help us to tell that story in ways that your spirit can kindle flame and fire in others that hear it and transform their lives, even as you are transforming us day by day. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I really believe that the words that we say, I'm not some mystical guy that believes you create reality, but I think the words that you confess with your mouth shape the way you think. And I would, I would encourage you to, to open your Bible sometime this afternoon, grab an index card, and write down this Habakkuk 2.14. And, and let that be the statement that guides you. Sometimes it's a prayer of, of great confidence. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And sometimes it's a prayer of desperation when you just can't see it, but you're trusting that one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I, I, I would encourage you, write that down on a card, stick it in your pocket. And in those mountaintop moments or in those deep, deep valleys, pull that out and just confess, this is what I believe, that one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's my prayer for you. Amen.